a lot of AI systems are powerful, but brittle, that they can be quite effective at performing various tasks. But then when they're faced with some kind of novelty, they often break badly. This episode was brought to you today by CNAS. AI safety, it's having a moment. To discuss why AI safety matters for national security, today I have on Paul Share, Vice President and Director of Studies at CNAS. He previously served in OSD policy and spent a while as a U.S. Army Ranger. Paul, welcome to China Talk. So, you know, Dolly, GPT-3, very cool, you know, making uh, uh, oil paintings of Mao and Jesus talking to each other. But um, why does this matter for national security? How is AI impacting the war in Ukraine? Mm. Um, well, I think it's worth acknowledging that obviously we're seeing tremendous advances in state of the art in terms of research labs. And you mentioned some of those like in language models or these multimodal generative models. Uh, but there is a big time delay between implementation in industry. Uh, and that's true in military, just as it is in other industries. And in some ways, it's, it's almost longer in a military context because there's funding issues for governments, there's bureaucracy that gets in the way. Um, so I, I don't want to overstate the degree to which artificial intelligence or, or deep learning, you know, in particular, is being used in military operations today. There have been some, you know, rumors, I guess I would say, some reports about image classifiers being used in the war in Ukraine by Russia and Ukraine. It's hard to know exactly what the ground truth is of those. Um, I think anyone that follows this technology knows that, you know, oftentimes there's a pretty big gap between kind of the, the hype about an AI system and then what it's actually doing. And I've sure. learned over the years to, you know, to be skeptical of initial claims. And that's true in the military space as well. Um, you know, probably the area that it is likely to have the biggest impact, and this is behind the scenes and hard to hear, or hard to see rather, is um, the type of intelligence support the U.S. military is doing to support Ukraine, where the U.S. government has said that it's supporting Ukraine through intelligence. They've been cagey about exactly what they're doing for obvious reasons. They don't want to be too deeply enmeshed in a conflict. But we know that the U.S. military's first deployment of image classifiers was almost five years ago now through Project Maven back in late 2017. And so uh, I do think it's safe to say that there's probably some areas in which AI is being used today to support intelligence operations in terms of analyzing satellite images and drone video feeds. Uh, but I wouldn't want to overstate how significant that is today. It's probably, to be honest, fairly marginal. Um, and talking to people on the inside in terms of uh, how the U.S. military is using AI to process intelligence, what I've heard is that, you know, a lot of these tools, uh, they are impressive from a technical standpoint. This is what they're able to do. But going that next step, in terms of really transforming your operations to then use this technology, that's kind of the game changer for any new technology. I think that's still a ways down the road. Great. So let's fast forward to the great Taiwan war of 2028. Um, how does AI uh, impact the uh, you know, force structure and the way, the, the, the way conflict plays out? Sure. So over the next, say, six years or so, I think we're going to see increasing use of some of the AI tools that are fairly mature today. Natural language processing, um, you know, predictive algorithms for things like predictive maintenance, certainly uh, image classifiers uh, to do object detection and recognition for things like drone feeds and satellite images, 
probably a lot of uh, business process automation, um, things that you know may not involve machine learning, but are simply automating tasks that humans are already doing, trying to speed them up. Um, that'll enable militaries to do things like, for example, compress targeting cycles. So shorten the time it takes to get a piece of intelligence, understand it, pass it over to you know those making decisions about targeting, and then carry out some kind of attack, um, you know, maybe by several hours, compressing that time cycle. Um, but I would still say that it's largely going to be on the next you know, five to 10 years, um, you know, very human-centric process. Uh, we're a long ways from Skynet and from AI systems, you know, running warfare in a very significant way. Um, and some of that's going to be just the realities of military bureaucracies in, you know, in the United States, certainly in China, um, in terms of their ability to integrate these technologies and then change their operations. Great. So let's, uh, you know, let's do the 15 plus horizon. Um, you know, what's the, what's the sort of bull case for how impactful um, these technologies could end up being? Yeah. So I think one of the interesting questions is what happens when you have um, AI implemented across the space of militaries, the same way that we have you know, other general purpose technologies like electricity or you know computers integrated today. Um, so over time, say in 15, 20 year time horizon, I do think it's quite possible that you see AI systems being used to more rapidly analyze information, fuse it, pass it to decision makers who need it, help them understand the battle space better. And then we'll see over time more intelligent, networked, autonomous, swarming munitions and platforms that can carry out operations, whether it's constant operations, logistics, or kinetic strikes against various targets. And all of that um, seems like it is likely to lead over time to a battle space that is more transparent, where it's harder to hide, uh, militaries of greater situational awareness of what's happening, um, and that is faster paced. So if you can think about the Industrial Revolution had a whole set of technologies um, that, that then transformed warfare over time of World War I and World War II and increased the physical scale of destructiveness in warfare, greater iron and steel and firepower. AI is likely to do similar things, but at the cognitive dimension of warfare, increasing the pace and tempo of military operations um, in ways that in the long term, actually could be challenging for humans to deal with. I, I'd love to have you, before we kind of go deeper into this, reflect a little bit on sort of your experience as a warfighter. Um, what, what about, you know, running around as a ranger ends up, you know, helping and, and maybe inhibiting you as you're trying to process and understand and think about sort of alternative futures for um, the impact of uh, emerging technology on, um, on warfare? Thanks. A, a great question. Because um, it is certainly something that, that I think about often um, when, I'm, when we're looking at these issues about how technology might change warfare. Um, I spent about five years in the U.S. Army as uh, an army ranger, and then uh, later as a civil affairs specialist, did a number of tours overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the things that I took away was the complexity of the military environment, and just how chaotic things can be in terms of you know, being in you know, firefights in Iraq between different Iraqi forces, and you're not even sure who's, who's shooting at each other. Like, who's, are these Shia militias? Are they Iraqi army forces? 
Are they malicious in Iraq, stolen Iraqi army uniforms? Are they all of the above? Like, there's a lot of chaos and confusion in military environments. And warfighters really strongly prefer technology that is proven and robust. And so, you know, when I was an army ranger in the infantry, I was pretty skeptical of any kind of newfangled gadgets. Grunts don't want the newest, latest, greatest widget. They want something that's been around for a while, that's going to work when it's freezing, when it's hot, when it's been dragged through the mud and beat up and dropped out of a helicopter. Um, and, you know, I, I keep that skepticism with me when I think about the way the technology is going to be used in military operations today. There was at times, I'll be honest, uh, in kind of the fence technology space, there could be some magical thinking, right? Where, you know, people look at some new technology, oh, exoskeletons, they're going to change warfare. And, you know, I, you got to think about the limitations of these technologies too, right? So that's cool that there's this exoskeleton that's been demonstrated, but what happens when it runs out of batteries, right? That is not very useful. And you got to understand those limitations, whether it's AI or something else. Um, you alluded to stuff breaking, um, and, uh, you had a nice sentence recently, AI systems could fail potentially in unexpected ways due to a variety of causes, including faulty training data, insufficient test, evaluation, verification, and validation, improperly designed human machine interfaces, poor operator training, insufficient institutional attention to safety, automation bias, unexpected interactions with the environment and human error among other causes. You couldn't even, after like a 12 list, you couldn't even, you know, close the door on it. Um, Paul, pick your favorite three. What are the <laughs> most important, least tractable uh, messes that uh, badly uh, operationalized AI could lead, um, uh, could lead, you know, could lead armies into? Yeah, um, I, I think you're using the word nice there sarcastically with that science. It, isn't, it sounded reasonable when I wrote it down, but when you read it aloud like that, it's, it's quite a mouthful. Um, you know, I think that the really short kind of takeaway here is that a lot of AI systems are powerful, but brittle. That they can be quite effective at performing various tasks, but then when they're faced with some kind of novelty, they often break badly. They're poorly at generalizing. They don't handle average distribution examples very well if they're facing something in the real world that's not consistent with their training data. Um, that's true in a variety of applications in things like facial recognition. It's also true in military settings. So when the U.S. military first deployed um, image classifiers overseas as part of Project Maven, we saw the performance drop off pretty significantly because you know the operating environment was not the same as the training data, yeah. which is actually exactly what you would expect. And to its credit, the military rapidly updated the system. They did, um, they've talked about publicly, six updates in the first eight days, which is exactly what you need to do as an institution to kind of stay on top of these things. Um, but, you know, I think these are really fundamental limitations to AI systems today. And they're, they're deeply intractable. Um, you can get at some of them by putting in place, you know, better, larger, more diverse training data sets. Um, you can put in place processes to rapidly update systems once they've been deployed, but particularly in a military context where you don't know where you're going to be deployed, who you're going to fight against. Your enemy is adaptive and adversarial, and they're not going to, you know, 
put out their military systems for you to gather training data on, yeah. right? To trade your system, they're making it easy for you. Um, they're going to conceal things that they only use in wartime. All of these things are kind of like really tailor-made to break AI systems. So, you know, if self-driving cars have trouble in, an, you know, a driving environment where we've mapped down to the centimeter all the aspects of the environment and people are trying to get hit by cars, the worst environment is just much, much more challenging, right? Um, so I think that that's where I come from when I think about the problems of robustness and reliability of these systems in a military context. And that doesn't even get into the security vulnerabilities, right? Data poisoning and adversarial examples and ways to manipulate these systems uh, that obviously also matter a great deal in an adversarial context. So my one data point on AI testing is Pentagon Wars, the uh, book from the early 90s, which was then turned into like a kind of silly, but also very depressing HBO yeah. movie, um, where basically, you know, all the incentives were aligned incredibly poorly. Um, well, the book was actually fascinating and, and it kind of it was a great kind of bureaucratic history of how testing for the military can lead to very awful, very ugly incentives where um, stuff get, gets approved, which really shouldn't be. So, um, you know, measuring this stuff seems 10 times more complicated than seeing if, right. you know, a round goes through a tank. Um, how do you even start to um, to throw uh, to throw these systems the type of uh, craziness that they'd likely uh, uh, run into in a in a conflict scenario? Um, yes, it's a problem. I, mean, I think it's a real problem, and I think it's one that there's not a clear solution to right now. Because, as you pointed out, the military bureaucracy will do all sorts of um, go through all sorts of convolutions with technologies, whether it's. Uh, an infantry fighting vehicle in the case of the, the Bradley and Pentagon Wars or you know, an aircraft like a joint strike fighter in terms of how people set the requirements, often in unrealistic ways. Um, and that's when we have technologies that are frankly pretty mature. Sure. We know how to build reliable vehicles and aircraft. Um, now you've taken a technology that no one really knows how to build AI systems that generalize well. Um, that's an open research problem. And then you try to put it into this um, crazy gawkulator of this bureaucracy and then put it into a very challenging environment. I think it's all very difficult. The DOD, to its credit, has been uh, working very hard at what they're calling uh, responsible AI and implementing improved bureaucratic procedures to do test evaluation, verification and validation, kind of the awkward phrase the DOD uses to talk about AI assurance. Um, but it's, a, it's an open problem. So it, it's great that people are focused on this in the bureaucracy and they're working on it. But by no means do we have it solved. My sense, Paul, is that you actually need a few more generations of tech for just, just listening to you talk for the past 10 minutes. It's like it's not even worth it testing a lot of stuff that exists now, uh, you know, for doing anything besides like you know, train, like looking at satellite data or something, um, just because it seems so easy to mess it up that I feel like the algorithms have to go through a few more, you know, orders of magnitude of improvement um, before you can even think about running something like a, some, something like a, you know, Pentagon testing gauntlet. Is that not the case or? Um... I think it depends on the application sure. um, and how mature, you know, that, that, uh, AI technology that we're using is, and then, you know, what is the training data set that you have and how 
closely can you monitor it? And then what are the consequences of getting it wrong? Can you deploy it initially in a relatively safe environment where, you know, I have humans still closely supervising the system. And if you perhaps doing something weird, the human can go like, that doesn't make yeah. sense. Right. So if you look at the way that the DOD is using AI uh, based image classifiers in its intelligence operations, it's not getting rid of human intel analysts. It still is human intel analysts looking at this intelligence. But, you know, now maybe there's boxes around things giving some label and um, and that might help the Intel analysts. But we're not we're not relying on that AI judgment. And I don't think we're in a place where we could really count on. Yeah. I mean, the, the universe in which you have, you know, non-human driven drones killing people seems to be very, very far off. Yeah, that's that's not um, certainly from a technological feasibility standpoint, not something that could be done in a way that's reliable uh, or safe today. Uh, and that even if it could, there's all sorts of obviously legal and, and moral and, and ethical issues that, that crop up there. Um, so Paul, we just spent the past 20 minutes talking about all of the sort of hurdles that it will take for AI to get um, more um, comprehensively implemented into um, uh, into into war fighting. How does you know this dynamic of of AI being seen as the next electricity end up playing out and potentially alter uh, the international context? Well, certainly there is a global competition in AI that is heating up. Um, you know, in Washington, in Beijing, there's a lot of interest in adopting AI for military operations and looking at what uh, the other is doing. Uh, I think one of the concerns uh, that I have, at least, is that over time, these competitive pressures erode some of the incentives towards building systems that are more robust and reliable. That, you know, your your reaction just a few minutes ago was, hey, this stuff's not ready for prime time. However, and, and that may be true from a, from a sort of technological reliability standpoint. However, there are these competitive pressures internationally to move faster. And I often hear from people outside uh, the defense community who work on AI technology saying, look, this isn't, this isn't ready yet um, to be used in these really high consequence applications. What I'll often hear from people inside the defense department is we need to move faster. We need to move faster. And part of that's that they're living within this very slow, cumbersome bureaucracy. Um, but I do think there is a risk that over time, these competitive pressures lead to something like a a race to the bottom on safety, mm. you know, to say, hey, let's just, we need to get it out there. We need to beat the Chinese. The Chinese are saying, we need to beat the Americans. To, we need to deploy this thing. We need to use it. We need to demonstrate it. You know, let's shortcut this test and evaluation. And we've seen this in other military settings. The V-22 Osprey program canceled a number of the planned tests, and there were several crashes during development. Um, that led to the deaths of, of a number of service members. Uh, the Joint Strike Fighter went into production before the first uh, test flight was. So bureaucracies can sometimes get into these dynamics where they take shortcuts on testing. We've seen this in other uh, industries like self-driving cars or commercial airline autopilots that then they contribute to accidents. And I do think that's something to really um, be conscious of and think about how can we put in place structures that reduce those incentives and make it easier for countries to take a pause and make sure that the systems they are fielding are robust and reliable and they're going to work in a real world. So what is the, what is the downside of rolling this stuff out too fast? Just you end up like kind of net harming your, you know, 
comprehensive national military power or um, are there other things uh, that you should be scared of? Well, certainly um, one uh, concern would be that systems don't work properly um, or that they appear to work in peacetime and then you get to wartime and they don't work. And actually, the U.S. saw this in 2003 during the Iraq invasion with the U.S. Army's Patriot Air and Missile Defense System, which you know, didn't use machine learning, but had quite a bit of automation in it and was involved in two fratricide incidents, shooting down friendly aircraft, uh, a Navy F-18, a British tornado, killed the pilots in, in both instances. And after those, the U.S. military effectively took it offline. They pulled launch authority up to uh, higher level commanders. So it was effectively no. So they lost confidence in the system. Now, in that case, justifiably, but now what basically happened was the U.S. made this huge investment in a technology, didn't work out these kinks ahead of time, and then we got to war and found out it had all these problems. People said, we're not going to use it. So that's, I think, one big risk that militaries need to pay attention to. Um, another one is that in some types of settings, accidents could cause um, situations that might undermine stability. So if instead of shooting down a friendly aircraft, it had shot down an enemy aircraft before the war had started in a you know, pre-conflict scenario, right? Or a commercial airliner, which we've seen accidents like this sure. happen. Um, USS Vincent shot down an Iranian airliner in the 80s, killing everyone on board. So uh, now humans were involved there, but those types of accidents could dramatically escalate crises could make it more difficult for politicians to walk things back. You, know, you take like the Cuban Missile Crisis and you start adding in like unreliable AI systems and automation. It's not, not clear that really is stabilizing in any way. Um, and I think that's a, a significant concern as well. Okay, now you got me scared, Paul. And I, think, I think there are things to be concerned about. Yeah, sure. So, so Paul, more on destabilization. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the questions is over time, what does the widespread introduction of AI into warfare look like? Uh, not necessarily in the near term, but if we, if AI begins to accelerate the tempo of war and the pace of combat action, what does that lead to? Some Chinese scholars have hypothesized about in the future a singularity in warfare, a point in time at which the pace of combat operations exceeds humans' ability to keep up. And militaries have to effectively turn over control to machines just to remain effective on the battlefield. Now, we've seen this in other industries like stock trading, where you know, there's whole domains of high-frequency trading where humans just can't possibly be involved, sure. right? Where machines are making trades in milliseconds. Um, and there are some narrow domains of warfare where this is true today uh, for things like air and missile defenses that have automatic defensive modes already on them. Um, so, you know, in other uh, contexts, some U.S. scholars, John Allen and Amir Hussein, have referred to a, a similar concept as hyperwar, this idea that there's some kind of phase transition uh, in the future to this much more rapid machine-driven tempo of war. Uh, you know, it's a, a possibility, certainly, but one I think that would be deeply concerning. And, you know, as we see militaries integrate more AI into their operations, not only do we need to think, you know, in the near term about things like reliability, but in the long term, how do we ensure that we're keeping human control over warfare, uh, that we don't lead to a point where there's humans are, are too disengaged from what's occurring on the battlefield? Yeah. But I mean, it does like the argument does have some sense into it that 
if uh, you know your adversary has you know built up a robust system that can move faster than you can, then um, you know it 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 it, it may very well lead um, uh, to a sort of arms race of learning to love the AI. I guess um, where more and more of the uh, of the um, uh, of the checks that you have um, that would potentially stop stuff like un, uh, unintended escalation ends up falling to the wayside. Right, and we've seen this in other types of strategic contexts. You know, things like launch on warning for nuclear weapons is is dangerous, but there's a logic to it, uh, and that it can be you know stabilizing and reduce incentives for for strike. So. Uh, I think we're very early stages for AI of trying to understand what are the potential applications and then how do we think about international stability and incentives among countries and how can we think about using this technology in a way that's stabilizing. Great. So let's let's talk now about the, the Cold War analogy you just alluded to. Um, arms control. Is this something that is even relevant in an AI context? Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. Now, um, you know, I think the common reaction is you can't do arms control with AI because it's such a widely available, ubiquitous technology, you can't bother with it. And I think that's, that's valid with an asterisk. And then I do think that there are places where it's conceivable that there might be ways to engage in effective arms control. So one of them is that um, not all kinds of arms control involve preventing access to the technology. Some do, like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, so you can't enrich uranium. But there are others, bans on landmines and cluster munitions, for example, don't try to stop countries getting access to the underlying technology to build those weapons. Countries simply agree not to build those weapons and produce them and deploy them. Um, so there might be things that countries could agree. Look, we're going to use AI in general, but there might be some AI applications where countries say, we're not going to use this application of AI. And we saw attempts... Um, you know, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century to do this with a lot of technologies coming out of the Industrial Revolution, to be fair, with a mixed track record of success. Um, but I do think that's one way to approach it, to say there might be avenues for arms control. The other area is in computing hardware, where, in fact, um, there are much more tight supply chains. There are choke points in the underlying technology where it might be possible to actually... Um, limit access to certain actors, depending on how we see semiconductor supply chains evolve over time. Um, let's take a, a dive into history. Uh, Paul, you recently wrote a piece with Megan Lamberth about, which goes all the way back to like the book of Hammurabi. Oh no, it wasn't. It was the, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the Mahabharata to finding arms control examples. Yeah. Um, what are some lessons that you can learn from this you know, let's start with the ancient history stuff. What are, what are some examples there and, and, and how is this stuff relevant today? Yeah, we have a report coming out um, at CNAS uh, later this fall from myself and Megan Lamberth, my colleague there, that walks through the history of arms control and then applies some lessons for artificial intelligence. Um, and I think one of the important takeaways is that attempts to control weapons date back to antiquity. The Mahabharata has this line that translated says, there should be no arrows smeared with poison nor any barbed arrows. These are the weapons of evil people. So what's interesting about this is it's not like tactical guidance saying these weapons don't work. It's saying that they're immoral and you shouldn't use them. Um, and these, these happen throughout history, again, to mixed effect. But historically, there are many attempts 
by humans to say, even while we're killing each other, we're going to set aside some weapons and say, these are beyond the pale. And, um, you know, what are the lessons that we can learn from that? I think there are several. Um, one is the importance of clear, you know, sort of rules that people clearly understand what is acceptable and, and what's not, uh, that people are able to comply with those, that the, the perceived horribleness of the weapon for some reason outweighs its military value. That's quite important too. Um, but I think there are a lot of lessons that we can apply then to any emerging technology today to come with a sort of historically informed perspective on what might be possible. One of my biggest takeaways from from going through this like incredible appendix you guys have is um, the idea that like causing more harm than you need to to win the particular battle or engagement um, just strikes everyone as awful. So you have the Mahabharata saying barbed arrows are not cool, which is, you know, presumably the logic is, look, if you get hit by an arrow, you're probably out of commission and like having to pull it out in a way that, you know, infects you and kills you two weeks later is not that relevant when the battle is going to be over by then. 2,500 years later, you have um, in the early 1900s, sawback bayonets, which are basically, this was a weird google uh hole i got into which is basically like a serrated knife <laughs> um uh that you would put on the end of your you know world war one era rifle um has the same has the it's like literally the same mechanism right it's like when you pull it like if you stab someone with yeah. a bayonet they're probably done for the day but if you pull it out um then you're looking at you know almost certain death with like awful internal uh, wounds and what have you. Um, and the, and the fact that, um, you know, there was this, there was this echo across history just struck me as so, um, interesting and something, I don't know, like encouraging almost about the human condition that like people from such different cultures, from such different time periods saw the same thing as, um, uh, as uh, completely unacceptable for, um, uh, for warfare. I, I do think it's encouraging that, um, you know, even in the midst of wars, humans have historically sought ways to try to regulate violence, eliminate and cooperate to ensure that the violence isn't worse than it needs to be, even when they're trying to kill each other, which is kind of miraculous when you think about it. Um, the Somak bayonet is a particularly interesting case. So the it was this this German World War One bayonet that had a serrated edge for sawing wood. But as you pointed out, when you pull it out of a person, it caused these really grievous injuries. So Germany actually unilaterally pulled this from their forces because reportedly British and French troops would basically torture and kill a German soldier they found with it because they were so upset by this. So sometimes there's this perception that in order for arms control to work, you need a formal treaty that's legally binding and you need these verification mechanisms with inspectors. And those can all help. They can buttress an agreement. They can make it coordination more effective. Um, but they're not necessarily required. And you do have instances, even in the midst of warfare, where there is coordination, um, sometimes through tacit forms of agreement between various actors to say, hey, look, we're, we're not going to do this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, this idea of like norms development, even in the midst of a conflict. And it makes me a little more pessimistic if you try to apply that to an AI context. And it's like, okay, it's one thing to literally kill the guy who decided to stick you know, the, the serrated knife on their bayonet instead of the, um, uh, the other one, because, you know, he was just trying to save time when he was chopping down his wood or whatever, versus, um, you know, building in some don't target the hospital, 
um, code into your um, into your AI system. It's like there, there are many more sort of uh, degrees of separation away from like the person actually deciding to do the thing, um, which I imagine makes it a lot more difficult in um, uh, in in bringing this stuff to software. I mean that's right, and that's one of the challenges with AI, and certainly those who've been involved in debates around autonomous weapons. You know, sort of one application of AI in the military context. Um, this has been a frequent issue, which is that. Ultimately, AI is changing the, the command and control, the decision-making process of a system. Um, there may be implications for its physical instantiation, but it's not like bayonet. You could see it and, and touch it. And so how do you even know whether or not your enemy is using AI, right? How do you know whether this targeting decision was made by a human or not? Um, there were you know, reports of it, uh, Russians using an autonomous weapon in Ukraine. Now, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't know that we have enough evidence to make that claim, but even if it were true, how do you prove that if you see a drone attack a target and you go, well, you know, it was the decision was made by a computer or a machine. And if you don't know, why does it matter? Um, it may in some context, but I think it, it does make enforcing agreements particularly challenging if you can't verify whether or not the other yeah. side is complying. Um, we've talked mostly about the sort of state context but i'm curious is there like a dirty bomb equivalent um uh when it comes to ai i mean no. i don't know about uh a dirty bomb equivalent i do think that um we are likely to see increasingly sophisticated use of drones and over time uh, automation and autonomous features even ai features embedded into these drones for attacks so isis had a pretty sophisticated drone capability and they were able to be pretty effective in um, attacking Iraqi forces within Iraq several years ago. And they had a cell using basically commercially available drone technology. They didn't have state sponsorship. Uh, you fast forward to that five, 10 years from now, I think you're likely to see more autonomous operation, potentially over time swarming features that involve drones working together. Um, image classifiers used within these systems that make them more intelligent and cooperative and really harder targets on the defensive side, right? So, you know, a drone that's just kind of, you know, flying via remote control, you could jam the comms link. If using GPS, you could jam the GPS or spoof it. But if it's relying on visual-aided navigation, if it's identifying objects, if it's swarming with other systems and able to coordinate their attacks, that is harder mm. to counter. Um, Probably not as consequential as a, a dirty bomb, but um, I do think that we're likely to see, we already see pretty sophisticated use of robotic systems by non-state actors. Uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen are using uh, long-range drones to attack uh, Saudi Arabia. They've used uh, drone boats, actually. So I think over time, those are going to have more autonomous and AI features and be more effective gotcha. as a result. Um, anything else on the, on the arms control stuff before we do hardware? Um, you know, I think another area that's worth exploring in terms of cooperation between states are a group of agreements that, that are generally shorter of arms control are called confidence building measures that don't regulate, that don't sort of say countries can't use a technology, but maybe affect how they use it. And the poster child for this is the 1972 U.S.-Soviet incident at sea agreement, where there had been a number of air and maritime incidents between the U.S. and Soviet militaries, um, and they both had a mutual interest in avoiding accidents. And that agreement put in place deconfliction measures between their forces. It was actually pretty effective 
in reducing the number of uh, incidents out at sea. We're now in a place where, you know, there are over 100 countries and not groups that have drones. Uh, increasingly, they're using, you know, drone boats or ground vehicles. The U.S. has deployed an autonomous ship uh, out on the high seas, the Sea Hunter. So, you know, how can countries deconflict their operations so that if you have autonomous aircraft or boats operating near each other uh, out in international space or in contested areas, we don't see accidents where you see a system go somewhere that you don't want it to go, actually. Um, maybe get too close to another vessel, cause a collision. If it's an armed system, maybe fire on uh, an enemy vessel when you don't want it to. Uh, and is there room for something like an autonomous incidents agreement for countries to come together and think about rules for the road for these systems to reduce the risk of accidents and miscalculation? And I think that's another area that's worth exploring. That's an active area of research for us at CNAS as we think about trying to better understand ways to mitigate the risk with some of these technologies. Paul, what's compute governance and why does it matter? When we think about arms control, one of the places where there is potentially really good purchase on the problem is in looking at compute. So the computing hardware underlying AI systems. And it seems like the element of the AI stack where there's most potential to actually limit access potentially. Um, algorithms, for example, are going to be really widely available. And supply chains right now are concentrated in a couple of key nodes and choke points that are actually largely controlled by either the United States or close U.S. allies and partners um, between you know, the United States, Taiwan, South Korea, the Netherlands, Japan. Uh, they control a lot of the underlying technology behind semiconductors uh, and hardware that's needed in AI. And this sort of you know, geopolitical reality intersects with the fact that in AI, we've seen, of course, this huge growth in computing hardware needed for training these very large models, for compute-intensive models. And so that suggests, you know, is there an opportunity for thinking about governing compute in a way that might help restrict access, if you needed to, to dangerous AI capabilities in the future to some actors? So this, you know, there's this this phenomenon that's been occurring as we've seen this growth in compute-intensive machine learning, where the number of actors that can access cutting-edge machine learning has been shrinking over time. And it's usually a big criticism of the field, where researchers are saying, look, university researchers can't get access to these, uh, the compute needs to train these large models, and all of it's being concentrated in the hands of you know, a small number of companies or research labs. It's no surprise that you know, two of the leading AI research labs, actually three of the main ones, right, OpenAI, DeepMind, and Google Play, all are backed by major multinationals with very deep pockets. Um, from the standpoint of democratizing the technology and research, that's a problem. From the standpoint of limiting access to it, if you're worried about people doing bad things, that trend is beneficial. Doesn't mean those actors are necessarily the ideal ones, but... Um, that trend suggests there might be ways to uh, govern the technology. And that's something that we're interested in, again, actively exploring. We actually have a new project uh, that we're launching at CNS to better understand this, to figure out are there ways we can potentially, as we see the technology evolving, and you see governments getting really involved in industrial policy for semiconductors. Just the last few weeks, the United States government passed a, a major bill 
leveling over you know fifty billion dollars in subsidies for semiconductor industry, uh, reassuring fabs in the United States, investing in R and D, and a little bit quieter but um, also very significant increased export controls on semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. And so, uh, how do these political realities intersect with the technology and where AI is going? Uh, and that's what we want to better understand. So if you made it to this point in the episode, you may be thinking, huh, kind of cool some of this stuff Paul's talking about. Um, should I spend the next few years of my life on it? Well, if that is the case, and Paul gave off a you know nice enough boss vibe, um, he's got some money to spend recently thanks to Open Philanthropy to hire for a number of positions around AI safety and compute governance. Paul, do you want to give the pitch yourself? Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for giving me the opportunity. So we're launching a new project um, on AI safety and stability. Um, we're very grateful to Open Philanthropy for their support in doing so. It's a center-wide multi-year initiative here at the Center for New American Security. We are expanding our team to make this possible. We actually have six new positions open at all levels from the project assistant and research assistant level all the way up to senior fellow. Um, and so we're, you know, looking for people who are passionate about this issue, who have excellent writing and analytic skills uh, to apply and, and to join our team. Experience in AI machine learning is not required. Um, if you don't have that background, we can give you the tools necessary to get ready. Um, and we'll invest in people taking additional training to get deep on the technology before they get underway in the project. Uh, but we want people who are excited about these opportunities to shape the policy in this space and to address some of these risks surrounding AI competition. So I've been thinking about this in the China studies context, um, because uh, this is probably the, the sort of subject matter where I feel most acutely the, the, I, the, like the fact that there's a lot more work that could be done. Um, but I don't know if it's twice as many people, five times as many people, like in an ideal world, Paul, like, should there be a hundred folks, you know, exploring AI, uh, AI safety and, 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 you know, working at think tanks, thinking about compute governance, like how would you conceptualize like where one hits diminishing returns for exploring, uh, you know, emerging technologies, emerging technologies in defense? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's the there's technical safety things, which is not what I do. But in the policy side, I guess I'd look to examples of other areas like uh, nuclear stability or cybersecurity, where there are robust fields of policy practitioners that understand the technology very well and can make technically informed debates around policy. Um, and there are vibrant intellectual communities yeah. there that consist of people in academia, and people in government and people in think tanks who, you know, are, are tackling the issue from a variety of different dimensions. I would love to, you know, five years from now, see that getting off the ground in the AI policy space. And there begins to be some clearer understanding of what are the key uh, research questions? What are the key challenges when we think about AI competition and stability in this space? Um, and there's, you know, I think we're nowhere near the point um, of diminishing returns. I think we could easily double and double again uh, the researchers working in this space to start you know, better understanding these issues and start building up that community. Yeah, it's it's a good point. It's it, I think it's a really important point, Paul, the idea of a community, um, because, you know, having one person on a question, it's like not particularly likely that that person is going to have 
you know, the optimal answer. Um, but also, you know, having five people all working on the same question with you is additive. Um, because you have people to talk to about these things. Everyone has a slightly different, you know, professional methodological background, and it adds up to more than the sum of its parts, I think, as opposed to sort of like being and also sort of emotionally feeling like you're right. on an island <laughs> as a researcher, being the only one who like thinks your thing is important. So yeah, that idea of like a, of like a, of like a network of like-minded folks, um, uh, it, it does seem to me that you, you have a pretty positive multiplier going from one to five to 20 to 50, um, even before you really start hitting, hitting diminishing returns. And this stuff is so important too, because it's like the amount of money that is going to, you know, fall, that is going to be, it's particularly in the defense context, right? The amount of money that's going to be spent and could potentially be spent like incredibly stupidly, um, uh, if these issues aren't thought out um, appropriately, you know, before, during, before and during uh, the implementation is, is kind of boggles the mind, like what the potential ROI on, you know, just having like 10 people who you pay a salary who like don't even have CapEx associated with them, um, you know, thinking about talking to folks, thinking about this stuff, talking to folks and, and writing up what they... Um, uh, and I think the... Um... You know, and there are other areas where we've started to make some progress here. If you look at the debate surrounding lethal autonomous weapons, um, which have been underway for several years, you know, that's become a very vibrant intellectual community where there are lots of debates among people from academia and legal scholars and policy practitioners and, you know, folks coming, coming from the humanitarian disarmament community. Um, I think in terms of this question of with our machine learning and AI applications, we're just at the very early stages, uh, but there's a lot of tremendous, you know, areas to explore. And I certainly, you know, to your point about the value of having a community, uh, certainly for me, I learned so much more engaging with people that are challenging my ideas, right? And and you go, well, you know, there's people, why, why do you think that? And you have to defend your ideas. And sometimes you go, well, I don't know, maybe I don't have good reasoning for that, right? Or if I suppose are reading things that you don't agree with, and then you have to, well, why? Don't I agree with this or learning new things? So um, there, there's a lot of great work being done uh, now by uh, you know some researchers who are exploring the space, but I'm very excited to hopefully see that grow over time. And, and we're certainly growing our team here at CNAs. So, Paul, I spent some time two weekends ago at the Effective Altruism Conference in San Francisco. And the amount of artificial general intelligence adjacent uh, content I consumed and people I talked to uh, frankly, blew my mind. Um, I'm curious, Paul, you know, to what extent you think the sort of research errors that we talked to over the past hour, you know, speak at all to that conversation and maybe how that conversation just sort of like relates to the to the Pentagon more broadly. What's the connection? Well, um, certainly the work that we're doing is is focused on um, much more near term issues on you know, the implementation of narrow AI systems today. Um, and that, that is informed by what we see as very real practical problems. Um, but to your question about kind of like, where would the Pentagon be in these things? Uh, the national security community really doesn't think or talk about AGI, or, you know, transformative AI, or pick kind of your label that you want of some, you know, hypothetical future, more powerful AI system. Um, people are much more focused on the implementation of AI technology today. I would say that if you're concerned about the risks of more powerful AI systems, one of the challenges 
that, of course, people have in it, but it's how do you make that tractable to something to do today? Um, and there are people working on that on the technical safety front. Uh, on the policy side, what I see is interesting is that policy issues tend to be very path dependent. So if you look at lethal autonomous weapons, they're being debated. They have been since 2014 in a body of the United Nations called the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, the CCW. Why are they being debated there? That's the body that existed. It existed prior to that, and it was used for uh, debates around, for example, blinding lasers. And so when the new technology came along, this is sort of the forum in which states address this technology. And uh, autonomous weapons are effectively able to piggyback on prior technologies that states have come together to cooperate on. And so, you know, if you are concerned about, you know, let's say the longer term risks of more powerful AI systems, um, one way to approach that might be to say, how can you find avenues for states to cooperate today to minimize AI risks? Um, not because, you know, a drone boat going awry is going to cause some kind of, you know, existential risk or catastrophe, but um, if countries cooperate on that, maybe that puts them in a better position to cooperate in systems further down the road. Now, having said all that, if, you know, that's not something you're focused on, I don't think it's necessary to be concerned about AGI risk to look at these practical problems today that are grounded in the technology that is very real and being implemented uh, in the near term. And for what it's worth, I'll say, I actually don't like the term AGI. I think it's very anthropocentric, but, um, you know, I, that, that is kind of the term that people use. Uh, it's out there. Anthropocentric? Very human-centric model, right? So um, AGI is often framed as what happens when we have an AI system that is human-level intelligence? Why would we assume that human intelligence is some specialized form of intelligence that, a, that machine learning systems are moving towards, right? That has sort of this paradigm of intelligence as a staircase moving from you know, ants to mice to monkeys to humans to you know, something more advanced. I think actually what we've seen with the systems that we're building is that they have very different forms of intelligence uh, from humans, very different kinds of intelligence profiles. Uh, I would not be surprised to find that 15 years from now, we have AI systems that are much more qualitatively advanced than we have now and are better than humans in some areas and do worse in other areas. And um, you still have people debating whether or not it's AGI. And it's kind of like, turns out to be a mirage that recedes into the distance as we build ever more capable systems. Book recommendations, Paul. Technology and, and national security. What do you got for us? So the first one would be John Keegan's History of Warfare. It's, uh, yeah, it's a great read. Fascinating history of different ways societies engage in warfare throughout human history. And one of the things he starts with is, Klauswitz is wrong, that war is not the extension of politics by other means. War is a cultural activity. It's an expression in society. Uh, I think it's a great way to think about war. It challenges kind of the, the common paradigm in U.S. defense circles. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that was a takeaway for me reading it was you see how diverse and varied human activity and war has been throughout history. And there's this phenomenon today, and in the last several decades in the U.S. defense community, where people keep coming up with new labels of warfare, right? Irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, asymmetric warfare, military operations other than war. And it makes you wonder at a certain point in time, maybe we need to expand our horizons for what war is. If we keep coming up with these labels of things that are not quote-unquote yeah. war, as we properly define it, um, and I think 
uh, Keegan's book is, is a great, a great way to do that, to get a, a better picture of, uh, human behavior throughout work. Um, you know, next one I'd suggest would be Wesley Morgan's The Hardest Place, which traces the history of the American military involvement in the Pesh Valley, uh, in Afghanistan. So one of the things that stands out throughout this history is kind of, um, it's this, it's this microcosm of how the U.S. has been engaged in the conflict and how U.S. involvement kind of ebbed and flowed over time. Um, you know, it, it follows the history of this one particularly volatile uh, area. Um, it's actually, you know, for what it's worth, it was personal to me. I spent time there early in the war, um, but I think it's helpful for thinking about, um, you know, not just the history and, and lessons for future conflicts, but also things like counterterrorism operations and drone strikes today. Um, and the last one I'd suggest would be Thomas Schilling's Arms and Influence, which I think is a foundational book for understanding conflict and international relations. You know, we talked in really accessible ways about things like deterrence and compellence. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of important lessons there for what's going on in Ukraine or in, uh, you know, in Taiwan. And it helps us kind of understand international relations. It's really important grounding in some of the underlying concepts. Um, I'll throw one more in there since you shouted out John Keegan. The Face of Battle, which might have been his first book. I'm not entirely sure. 1976, pretty early on. Yeah. And it is uh, a very sort of like grunt, grunt's eye view of uh, three conflicts. So you go all the way back to Agincourt, Waterloo, and then the Somme. And the, the, um, the chapter that really stuck with me was actually the Agincourt one. Um, of this of this image of these like very th these men like literally running into each other and um the sort of physicality and like awfulness of it i mean there's a there's a bit of an aspect of like violence pornography in it right. um but i think it's i think the the bigger takeaway is just like how awful it is to be in situations where the only thing where like you're killing other human beings at such um um at such close quarters and then in the psalm contexts like over just months and years um so it, it's an interesting i think pair with a lot of his um subsequent work which kind of like goes up the um the chain of command and looking at how um you know how what was the face of bat what was the mask of command and in like a lot of his other work sort of goes up the chain of command and looking at um, war from different perspectives. Um, but keeping in mind that people are fighting and dying and often like really awful ways um, seems to be really important to ground folks, especially um, as uh, you know, you hear a lot of loose words being thrown around, particularly in the, in the, in the China context um, that this stuff just isn't a game and having the face of battle in my mind, um, you know, over for over 15 years now is something I kind of come back to, to um, remind me of that. Paul, any final words? No, thanks for having me on the show. People are interested again in, you know, pursuing some of these areas. Please check us out at cnas.org slash careers, where we have jobs posted and um, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Uh, Paul Charest, thanks for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dollar
情，但别挑战他下棋。全世界的问题不需再担心，他教会居民活性。Now.